so the biggest lesson I've learned in all these years is that like the facts kind of don't ever matter to change people's hearts. It's mm -hmm. about telling stories. So I am so excited for my next guest. Rabia Chowdhury is an attorney, advocate, and the executive producer of the four-part HBO documentary, The Case Against Adnan Saeed. She's a New York Times bestselling author and the co-host of two podcasts, one being Undisclosed, which has supported and assisted so many people uh, in getting their cases reheard and in getting released from prison for crimes they did not commit. Rabia will be publishing her next book, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, a memoir on food, fat, and family this year. She is somebody who I have long admired. Um, we've kind of worked together, kind of not, um, but someone who, who I've, I've really appreciated her leadership in the Muslim community, her leadership out of the Muslim community, um, and, and somebody who I, I've looked up to for years. This is At The Table with Dr. Ela Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Rabia, thank you so, so much for being here. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Ella. I'm honored. If you had to describe how you're feeling in two words, uh, kind of like an I feel statement, um, what, would, what would you say? I feel exhausted. Yeah? I think, yeah. I think this, um, this administration has uh, sucked the air out of so many other issues that are meaningful to all of us. Um, I, maybe it's not true for a lot of people, but I, uh, for at least for me and for many of the people I know, um, it is really the, the damage day in and day out, the political damage, the damage to our communities, the damage to the environment. The, I mean, so many of the things that are beloved to us, uh, it's just shocking how quickly many things could be unraveled. Um, and there's, it's exhausting because it's day after day, it's a day, right? The news cycle yes. ends. And so I feel a sense of exhaustion and I, and but, you know, right now, I also have to say, as the election gets near, I, my sense of hope is burgeoning again a little bit. Um, you feel a little I, hopeful. I Are do, you excited about Biden and Kamala? Are you? Um, I, I, <laughs> I supported Elizabeth Warren. I would have been excited about Elizabeth Warren, but I am content with, look, okay. I know the status quo doesn't excite a lot of people, but in the face of what we have 
been experiencing for the last four years, we, it's I, necessary. I, I would welcome the status quo. I, you know, and um, maybe it's my old age showing, but uh, it, and I do think the work of the progressives in the democratic party have, has been incredible and they've pulled the party to the left and mm -hmm. we gotta, keep, we gotta keep doing that and we will do it. It's happening right in front of our eyes. Um, but perfection of course is, is not what we're going to get um, ever right. and, uh, in the, on this ticket, but I think we're getting closer. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear that. Ravia, I do have to ask you, you know, a lot of people um, came to really know about your work with the podcast Serial. Um, it was a podcast that you, um, that was your more your personal mission than anything. You reached out to Sarah. Um, and and if, for those of you who don't know, Serial is a podcast in season one that goes through the story of Adnan Said, a case that you've been focusing on and working on and championing for years. And so my first question for you is what, if you could take us back to when you decided to leverage that medium, like why you went to Sarah, why you thought a podcast was the right way and what's happened since in the case. Yeah, you know, when I reached out to Sarah Koenig, who was a producer with This American Life, I think we were about, it was about 13 or 14 years after Adnan had been convicted. And in those 13, 14 years, we had fought all the direct appeals. We had lost all the direct appeals. We had just had a hearing on his most recent appeal. I had testified. Things went really badly for us because our um, witness, our alibi witness refused to, to come to court. And I just knew we were going to lose again. And that's, I mean, that's really commonly what happens in the system. And so I just remember sitting there one night thinking, like, the courts are not going to get this done. Like, this is, it's, we have tried the system. We had hope in the system and it didn't work. We need media. And the thing about journalism is, you know, journalists are not confined by the same kinds of boundaries that lawyers are, especially lawyers who are directly involved in a case. Uh, they're able to investigate in a very different way. And, and people also, frankly, are more willing to talk to journalists than lawyers. So, um, you know, I reached out to Sarah Koenig, um, and that's it's a little bit of a story about how I found her, but it was just a, the, it, I was just looking for a journalist who had written uh, in, in about Baltimore, about the crime scene, about anything back in the 90s, and she had done a little bit of writing because she was down here then. And mm -hmm. I just reached out and I said, I have this case, I don't know if you're interested in it. And the thing is, I had no idea she was going to make a podcast. I knew she did a radio show, and uh, she was within a, like the next day she responded to me. I met her within the next week, and she was hooked immediately. And after 10 months of her and her team working on the case, she said, oh, we're going to make this a 10-part podcast, or maybe it was 12 parts. And hey, we're going to make it a podcast. Uh, and I said, I don't, what is that? I don't know what a podcast is. And so, um, and frankly, I didn't care. I didn't care what she did. I don't, I, I didn't even care if she decided she wasn't going to do a, any story on it. What I wanted to know was, as she was talking to witnesses and digging, did she find anything that could get us back into court? That was yeah. my main concern. Um, and then it blew up. Serial blew up. Yeah. And in the years since, you've continued to focus, even though it's, it's not necessarily as in the light as it was before, but you've continued to focus on the case um, and you've continued to support and champion Adnan's innocence. Um, but you've also done that for others who you believe are wrongfully convicted um, through Undisclosed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I'm an attorney, but I have never practiced criminal defense and I have not worked in criminal justice because I was in law school when Adnan was arrested. I got disillusioned very early on and I just didn't want to do that work. What happened after Serial was that um, Serial was great. It exploded, but, but they also were not lawyers or criminal investigators. And there's a lot they missed. There's things that they didn't even touch on. 
And so me and a group of lawyers who got very interested in the case after listening to Serial, we had written hundreds of pages in our blogs about all the other evidence that Serial didn't mm -hmm. cover, some of the things they got wrong. And people told us, nobody's reading your blogs. Turn it into a podcast and they'll listen to it. And so we did a very amateur hour, said, okay, we're going to do a podcast just to follow up Serial and fill in all these other blanks. And we ended up doing like, I don't know, 30 episodes because there's a lot there. And, but when we finished, um, you know, not only did one of my co-hosts find the evidence that got his conviction overturned, but defendants and lawyers and innocence projects from around the country started reaching out to us and saying, can you look at our case now? Yeah. And it's just, it's been five years and we've done 22 cases and we have helped wow. exonerate nine defendants now. Wow. Nine but defendants. Adnan, Adnan, however, is still in prison and we are working on a new appeal for him too still. So we never walk away from him. Once we work on a case, we're with it until the end. And so I think, you know, for, for so many people hearing this, I don't think anyone is surprised that the criminal justice system has flaws, right? Um, and I've heard you speak very passionately about what needs to be fixed in order for it to actually work for everybody fairly and equally. Can you kind of give us all a little bit of that inside access in terms of, you know, why you think certain people are um, you know, accused and identified more by police, what that actually looks like in practice, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, um, and what that actually means, I think, for each and every one of us, you know, if, if we're ever in a position where we feel, you know, I've jokingly told you, hey, Rabia, if I ever get arrested, you're the first person I'm calling. Um, and, and that's still very true. But, but what you think it, it, it says about our criminal justice system Look, the average citizen um, is really at the mercy of the criminal justice system. They just really are. And because you're even at the mercy of your own attorney, you know, in, in Adon's case and in every case of every defendant we've ever looked at, their own attorney failed, whether it was a public defender, whether it was somebody that they uh, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars out of their own pocket or raising it through the community, that attorney fails. They didn't do their job on some level, which is why that defendant was wrongfully convicted. So you're kind of at the mercy. And when you look at the system, it just seems like there's so much. Like where do you start from the school to prison pipeline to bail issues to um, the, uh, you know, the, the prison, uh, the whole industry? The whole, they, there's billions of dollars being made on the backs of uh, the incarcerated, right? I mean, so there's so, it's like, where do you, but really the most powerful position is not the judge, it's not the jury. The most powerful position in, is not the cops in this entire network is the state's attorney, it's the district attorney. It's the person who decides, I will charge this person, I won't charge this person. It's the person who decides, this is the sentence I'm gonna ask for. It's the person who decides, these cops might have an entire history of misconduct, but I'm still gonna let them take the stand. Or that state's attorney can decide, here's a list of cops who have proven they're not trustworthy, they will never take the stand. So none of mm -hmm. their cases I'm gonna to touch, I'm gonna to revisit. That person can reopen cases, that person can dismiss charges, that person can exonerate somebody who's been in prison waiting for a judge wow. to make a decision for five years. And I can guarantee you 99% of the people in this country have no idea who their district attorney is, who the state's attorney is. Is and the district attorney elected or appointed? They're elected. They're, They're always, elected. always elected. And that's the thing. It's as simple as that. And what you end up finding is this. People who are district attorneys, and that, so that's the person who heads the entire like, office of, of the prosecutors, right? They, they'll be, they, they're career prosecutors. They've never worked maybe in criminal defense at all. They go from being prosecutors to district attorneys to judges. 
So they only really are operate on one side of that line. And, but what we need, and we're seeing this in a few cities now across America, we've seen it just in a few, like in San Francisco and Philadelphia and a couple different places where finally criminal defense attorneys or civil rights attorneys are like enough. I have seen 20 years of my clients get screwed. I'm now running for this position and they're Mm -hmm. winning. And then, and they can make incredible changes within a matter of months. It's amazing how they can affect the system. Um, so have you ever considered running? I, I have never considered running for a district attorney, although I do joke that if this next appeal doesn't work for Adnan, I'm going to run for attorney general. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I haven't. Um, for a lot of reasons. There are people who are much better positioned than me, people who have the actual criminal defense experience of practicing, who, who know the judges, who know, who know exactly when they get in office what prosecutors to get rid of, right? <laughs> they know which cops mm-hmm. never to trust. So there are people, but we are, as a community, we, we really, if you care about this issue, criminal um, justice reform, you've got to run the right people. Find the right criminal defense attorneys and civil rights attorneys in your area and say, why aren't you running? How can mm-hmm. we support? you how do we put you in position and are there organizations or or areas where we can actually kind of access this network or or mobilize this space or or is that something that is in the pipeline you know unfortunately there isn't and that's something i've thought about a lot there there was an activist and i'm not going to name the activist a couple of years ago who said i'm going to be starting i'm starting this entire organization where all across the country we're going to financially support progressive um attorneys at to help elect progressive prosecutors. A bunch of money was raised, and then from what I understand, like nothing came about it. And so, you know, there could be some issues there. But other than that, there's no, never been a concerted effort. It's really been like a, like a region by region, a jurisdiction by jurisdiction, a county by mm-hmm. county effort. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen an organization that's saying that this is kind of our, um, our plan and see it actually work. So yeah. really- it's down to people who locally have to just be like, oh, so this is the DA. How long has he been in office? Oh, 20 years? Like, why? You know, nobody should hold position that long. Yeah, and actually take them to task on it. So, Rabia, you, you do this work. You're also, you are a practicing attorney. You are writing a second book, which I'm assuming will become another New York Times bestseller. I and no <laughs> what, I mean, you have to manifest these things, Rabia. Okay, okay. We're going to speak it into existence. Vision board. Um, vision board yeah. I know. This goes against everything in my upbringing. It's like you work hard and it'll happen. So uh, you work hard and it'll happen. But my, I've always wondered, especially when I talk to other women who, you know, they, they share the reality of kind of belonging to so many different um, groups, right? So you are Muslim, you are um, South Asian, you are, you know, an attorney, you have all of these hats that you're wearing. And, and oftentimes people identify, identify you, as we all know, based on the hat you're wearing, rather than your individual experiences and leadership and work. And so this question is very specifically about Rabia, the, the person. What have you learned in these past, you know, 20 years that you've been championing at Nan's case, but especially in the past, you know, five or six years where it became so public, where it became this global conversation? Um, and, and what has both the positive and the negative reaction taught you? You know, what one thing I think has become very clear to me, and I think for a lot of people, is that what one person believes is the fundamental truth like so many others can look at the same set of facts and come to a completely, the completely opposite conclusion. Mm-hmm. Kind of the fluidity 
of what yeah. is true. Like, how is it possible that the same set of facts can lead to different conclusions? You, you don't think like rationally that could happen. And what I realize is that, you know, and, and some of this work, you know, when I, before I really kind of completely had to pivot to address, because when Serial happened, I was working in the national security policy space for, I had been working in it for six years. I was, the, I was at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Before that, I was at New America Foundation. Um, but when Serial happened, I realized this is a now or never. If I don't give Adnan's case all the attention, this could be the only leverage we ever get. So I had to work yeah. on that to give this to give this all the attention I could at the time. And uh, but when, even when I was in that space, and a lot of my work was just trying to under, understand how people were drawn to certain kinds of you know, ideologies and this and that. Between that, between seeing what happened with Serial, which is, if you think about this, it's the most successful podcast in the history of the world. It drew 800 million listens, and it's about a Pakistani Muslim boy, man, you know, in part, and so many people cared. Where after 9-11, Muslim advocates in the United States and activists tried desperately to get people to care, tried yeah. desperately to humanize us, and it didn't work. We, were, we just kept failing at it, which is why, you know, anti-Muslim sentiment kept growing even after 9-11. So the biggest lesson I've learned in all these years is that, like, the facts kind of don't ever matter to change people's hearts, it's mm -hmm. about telling stories. And the, the greatest lesson I learned from Sarah Koenig and Serial is that she was able to tell Adnan's story as a human being. She did not mm -hmm. just lay out facts. And even as lawyers, we think very much as facts. Like, you know, and I remember after 9-11, we were all like, oh, Islam is a religion of peace, look at the Quran. I mean, no, nobody cares about that. Yeah. Um, and so the power of storytelling, uh, and it's, it works in every space. It works in the advocacy space and policy, it works in media. There's nowhere that it can't be translated and it's not powerful. It works inside the courtroom. Uh, it really, it's, it's, and the more I think about it, I mean, even in our, even for those of us who profess a faith, most of that faith comes to us through storytelling and scripture. I mean, so that's really the greatest lesson that I've, I've learned. Um, also, I've, I've, I've been humbled a lot um, in learning many things that I just realized I just didn't know before. You know, there are mm -hmm. lots of issues that I used to advocate on and be an activist on. And then as you mature and, see more of the world and understand people in different ways. Um, you just realize how little you actually know <laughs> about, any yeah. about any given issue. So Rabia, you've spoken about it in the past, um, your own personal experience as a survivor of domestic violence. And, you know, I, I know that as a storyteller, you're, you're putting together this incredible memoir. Um, so it, first off, is that going to be in the memoir? Can we learn, uh, you know, a little bit about your more, your more personal experiences? And, and second, Really, what, what is the, the message you have there? What, what is that, um, the story that you can tell there? So, you know, when I, um, I was, I'm, I'm married right now, but this is my second marriage. I was, my first marriage, I, I was very young. I was still in college. I was 21 years old. And I grew up in a family where I had never, ever, ever seen domestic violence take place. Um, I, my fiance at the time had told me that he was raised in a family where he had he had grown up seeing his father do this to his mother. And I felt tremendous amount of sympathy for, for him having seen that and his mother, not at the time, not having the maturity to understand how these things happen in cycles, how when people are raised with this, even if they hate it, for some reason they can't escape it. So very early on in the marriage, like within a matter of months, um, he, he did, he hurt me numerous times. Mm -hmm. He beat me very badly a number of times. And it, it was so shocking in, in that moment that um, it just, I was, and I remember, I remember, everybody says this, 
I would never stay with a person who hit me. I would never stay with a person who cheat. Like everybody says that. Yeah. When you're in it. And I was in, I was in law school. I was, it wasn't like I was a, an, a woman who was just like a complete, like I have no, uh, no family here. I don't have any language skills. I don't have any money. Like I was a well-positioned woman. I had a family here. They were fine. I was in law school. I had a job. Um, you had people you could depend on, go to, you had access to resources. So why did you yeah. stay? Yeah. And yet I was so full of shame. I was so, so full of shame. And it's not a shame you can understand unless you're, you've experienced it that I couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. I did not tell my best friends. I did not tell my, my family. I did not tell my sister. I was just drowning in shame from it. I couldn't believe how I ended up in this situation. And I just, all I did was try to, all I kept thinking was I just got to get through law school. And I, I I became pregnant like within two months of my marriage. So, you know, a year later I had a a baby girl and that was another thing. It's like, I, I just, I wasn't the whole, I was paralyzed by that situation. And I tried to focus all my energy and just getting through law school. And then I was like, then I can decide. Right. So, but the truth is when, when I did finally get out of the marriage, um, I still couldn't tell anybody for a long time. The first time I ever publicly said, um, even mentioned that I was a DV survivor was 10 years after I had left the marriage and I wrote a blog post and it was, I wrote it, I published it anonymously and it took me another like three or four years to admit that that was me who had written that, written that blog. It took a long time for me to stop feeling shame around it. Um, and what, what helped you kind of get out of that sense of shame? Like, was it just um, age, experience, reflection back? Was it more people around you opening up? What was, well, what what was kind was, of the journey there? What had happened was, you know, I had graduated from law school. I had begun practicing. I was practicing immigration law. Many, many of my clients were immigrant women. I did a lot of VAWA work, which is Violence Against Women, uh, under the Violence Against Women Act. Um, I did have clients who were uh, domestic who are stuck, badly stuck in these violent situations, but because of immigration issues, they couldn't leave because they, their husbands would threaten them to be deported. And I just, that sense of helplessness, like, like over the years representing those women, I think, you know, as I tried to empower them, it empowered me. Mm-hmm. And also I, I had begun writing much more frequently. And I realized whenever I wrote about something that was kind of a personal experience, every single time I would get, um, just dozens and sometimes hundreds of messages from women saying, Oh my God, thank you for speaking to X because yeah. that really helped me that, that re- cause I, I felt the same thing and I just didn't know that others felt the same way. And I, I wrote a, a two, I, I wrote a blog one time called um, how to get divorced. And I just didn't think like, you know, I didn't know how much it would resonate because most in the Muslim community, even divorce is shameful for many oh, people. Yeah. Like, we don't talk about it. I mean, so for many years- We don't years, talk about problems. We don't talk we don't, about problems, yeah. Yeah, we don't talk about problems. Yeah, for lots of reasons, right? Like there's all these, and there's sometimes there's these weird, like Islamic reasons that are, given, that are just completely illegitimate. <laughs> illegitimate. Um, so when I wrote that, I got hundreds of messages from people and from the parents of, of people who are stuck in bad marriages too, saying mm-hmm. thank you so much. I've, I've been so afraid of the shame of being divorced or considering getting divorced. And so I think I just got to a point where I realized how much it could help people, how much it could help like women in that situation. And that um, was a more important objective than like it, it outweighed any of the shame that I felt around it. And yeah. Um, yeah. And it actually yeah. helped, you know, that's the thing. When you speak these things out loud, it actually helps reduce the shame itself. 
Oh, for sure. It actually allows for even you to, to, to be able to have that conversation with yourself, I think. Yeah, it's therapeutic for you. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I often struggle with within um, the Muslim community, and I argue a lot of women's rights activists struggle with this in their respective faith communities or their cultural communities, um, is this kind of sense of, of what a good friend of mine, Mariam Safi, calls the double bind. Um, this, you know, idea that you can't necessarily speak up about some of the injustices towards women within your own community because it empowers anti-religious bigots that are out of your community. Um, yeah. But at the same time, when you speak up for women's rights, um, people say, well, how are you Muslim and a feminist? Or, or how are you Muslim and, you know, saying Islam believes in women? So it's, it's this, this kind of you're always stuck between this rock and a hard place. And I know you've had experiences with this as well. So how have you been able to... Um, to handle that? How have you been able to still stay motivated to continue to do the work, um, especially having worked in national security, having worked in, in law, having, having led on all these different fronts that are where you constantly have to humanize yourself to everyone, to people in and out of your community? Yeah, that, that's a, you know, that's, that issue loomed large for, and continues to for a lot of us. But I think, you know, there is a way there's a difference between criticism and critique, right? So I, when I, and I've written, for example, mm -hmm. about Muslim organizations, that Muslim organizations that I have loved and supported throughout my adult life, organizations that I think are vital to our community, um, for, you know, as civil rights organization, whatever. And what I've said, I'm writing this as a loving critic, as somebody who cares about this organization. The purpose of this critique is to uplift, is to make us better. That, and, and to me, th like, there should be our community... For the people who are uncomfortable with even that, I can't stop myself from doing that because their minds are that narrow, you know? Yeah. Uh, and as for the anti-Muslim bigots, guess what? They're never going to go away. I mean, like, you don't have to say X, Y, Z for them to already make allegations. Exactly. On so you, we cannot let those people stop us from making our community better, stronger. In the end, that's how we're going to defeat that. Um, you know, a lot of us grew up uncomfortable about how, like, what our space was in, in religious spaces. And I remember when the conversations first started happening and we had women, like, making films and, and others saying, well, I'm going to leave prayer, this and that. It was so shocking to the community mm -hmm. that they kicked them out, they rejected them. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, those women planted the seeds to, for us to be like, you know, for the next generation to approach the, to continue to work on that issue. And it yeah. we have rides there. Like they plant, they were, they were considered rebels. They were, they were considered like, like just completely like they were enemies to the community, even though they're Muslims, but they planted the seeds that allowed those conversations to continue to take place and really um, transformed us. I think in the last 15, 20 years as a community. Yeah, no, I hear you completely. I think, I think oftentimes it's easy in hindsight to see, you know, when the change happened, why it was so necessary, um, you know, why certain voices and certain leadership were so critical in moving an issue forward, even though it takes maybe a generation for us to actually see that change. And oftentimes they're, they are demonized. I mean, in the, in the, in the time they're demonized, but later people realize. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. I think, Rabia, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to, um, and your editor is going to hate me. I'm trying to get some sneak peeks into your book. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about Fatty Fatty Boom Boom? I will be honest, when I, when I first heard the title of the book, I was like, what is this about? And then, like, like so first off, tell me where the title came from um, and, and tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it. 
Well, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom uh, is is one of many childhood nicknames that I had. Uh, my family had, you know, I have, like many of us, especially from immigrant backgrounds, have this like big extended families who are all deeply concerned about every single aspect of your personal life, um, including your weight and your height and your whatever. Um, and so uh, from, you know, and I have always uh, had weight issues ever since I was really an infant. Um, I was a very heavy child. My, this is, it's like one of those things where I think I've accomplished all these things in my life. I've done things that I, I, I love my work. I love my kids. I have a great family, but the weight has always just, it's like, it's like this, um, this hag on your back that won't go away. Like the, the, as an yeah. issue, because it's an issue my family's always concerned about. And, but at the same time, we love food and we eat so much and everybody's trying to feed me but at the same time saying, why aren't you losing weight? You know? <laughs> and so Fatty Fatty Boom Boom is, I had lots of different nicknames. That was one of the nicknames and I thought it was, and I'm not writing this memo- book to be, uh, I, I don't, I don't intend for it to be, uh, a he- and I'm in the middle of writing. It's not complete yet. Yeah. But I don't intend for it to be like a really heavy downer type of book because even though it's always been there, I know my family, um, uh, their concern has always been out of complete love. And yeah. um, for those of you who've seen like my big fat Greek wedding, like imagine kind of the same dynamic where <laughs> like in your business. Uh, but at the same time, I've learned a lot of lessons around weight. I have learned um, there isn't a diet I haven't done. There isn't a workout regime I haven't tried. Um, and I'm going to be talking about, um, I'm also going to be talking about food and like, you know, like all the different foods, food. My family has so many food stories, related to it everybody in our family are you dropping some recipes in the book i will be i'll be dropping some recipes okay good it's not a cookbook but it's more a memoir and uh it just kind of came about it's been something that people have asked me to write about before every so often i'll like tweet a recipe or something i have cooked for 25 years i cook a lot uh and i cook pretty well so you know i'm still trying to finesse an invitation to one of your dinner parties just so you know listen anytime I see, I see the photos and I'm like, oh my God, give me that food. <laughs> Just give me the food. All right. As soon as it's over, we're having you over. We're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And I also, you know, my last book, Look, A Non-Story, was a really difficult book to write. It was heavily, you, you can't get stuff wrong. You can't get those facts mm-hmm. wrong. It's heavily researched. It's fact-checked. You've got lawyers looking at it. I needed my next book to be something I could just write from my heart and it would be um, something a little easier on my conscience. Although I have to say... Uh, memoirs are not emotionally easy to write, I realize now. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, you went for something that was easy and you chose a memoir? Really? Like, I thought usually it was emotionally yeah. draining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, thank God I, you had had I have a therapist. Con- hey, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> have you had difficult conversations with members of your family about, you know, what what that felt like growing up or um, as you've been writing it because sometimes they can they can bring up a good friend of mine when she was writing her memoir I got a random phone call at 3 a.m. where she was like do you remember when this happened Hmm. and this is how it made me feel and I'm like oh okay Um, (laughs) have you had kind of those moments (laughs) no you know I haven't and the reason I haven't what I do do is I fact check sometimes my parents like did this happen in this year or did this happen at this like you know but the truth is, um, and this is going to be part of, like in my introduction, I realized my introduction has to be kind of a disclaimer, which is the mem- is that the memoir is of my memories. Like it could be that yeah. somebody else remembers it differently, but the memoir is my memory. And this is how I remember it for whatever reason, you know? And so I've decided that that's the approach I'm going to take. I'm not fact checking uh, my memories uh, on this because for whatever reason, whatever happened in seventh grade or eighth grade has stuck with me. As in a that way. 
in that way. Yeah. And that's the way I'm going to tell the story. And uh, so for, you know, my parents, they, I mean, they already, like we, you know, talking about weight, my weight, it's like we talk about it all the time. And even now my dad, um, you know, when I told them what I'm writing about next, they just expected me to write another, like, you know, criminal justice related yeah. book thing. Um, it, it kind of dredged some memories. And my dad was like, do you remember when I used to offer you a dollar for every pound you lo- you'd lose? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I remember that dad. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's seared <laughs> into my memory. Thanks. Yeah. It's seared into my soul. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's um, my husband has this term of, you know, when I, when I say like, Oh no, I don't do that. Like I'm, you know, for running, I hate running with a passion mm. and I find it so, um, so boring, right? Like, I'm like, what do you even think about when you go? And he's like, you just listen to a podcast or you listen to it, like a song, like just, just try. And I'm like, no, I've never liked running. And he'll like, those are stories that you tell yourself for whatever reason, they're stories that you tell yourself about yourself. Mm. And I, you know, when I talk with people now about, you know, you, you had been mentioning earlier, you can have the same facts and people can have different perspectives. I had 10 brothers and sisters growing up. So I know that to be a truth of life. (laughs) And and I realize some of the memories that have been seared into my brain that have made me genuinely hate or love something, like that have had a lasting impression on me, are almost irrelevant to another member of my family. They don't even remember them. They're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, no, this transformed my entire life. And they're like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, And the last thing you want to hear is, oh, actually, that never happened. You're making that up. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I've heard that so many. I'll be like, I've heard that so many times. I've heard it so many times. Like, where, where I'll be like, no, no, this is, but this is what you said to me. And they'll be like, I'm sure I didn't say that. I'm like, yes, you did. I've, like, I've shaped half my identity on this conversation. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's so difficult, I think, sometimes when you are going through those memories, because you learn yeah. You know, not just about the, the stories you've been telling yourself, but also sometimes something that has completely transformed your reality is entirely irrelevant to some of the most important people in your life. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's such a difficult, you know, it's such a difficult kind of like wall to hit where you're like, wow, I, yeah. this was I mean, so large to me. Like when you're writing something like this, like there's no way I have no capacity to um, consider the perspective of every single person who shows up in the memory, like every single mm-hmm. relative, every single, I can't do that. Um, I, as at this age, I can look back at something and say, oh, maybe that's why they did or said something. Like I can understand exactly. it in a different way I did in the moment, but it's still, like you said, it stays with you in a certain way. It shapes you in a certain way. Um, and you either love or hate that memory for whatever reason for, you know, however it stayed with you. So, um, you know, I, I, I I'm not going to, Otherwise, my God, it'll be too many cooks in the kitchen type of situation. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, like, I just want like, nobody after every story. Yeah, I just want nobody in my family to read it, basically. So I don't have to listen to like. <laughs> <laughs> they'll come. They'll come on like release day, holding the book, being like, "This is not how it happened. I need you to tell everybody my side of the story." Oh, I can totally see it happening. They can write their own books then. See, that's how I feel. <laughs> they can they can go through the work of like calling people at 2 a.m and being like did this happen when i was 14 or 15 so rabia you and i have um in the past had a conversation and it was uh, you know i think we were both kind of on different sides of it um about how we engage as a community on difficult issues and um and that's you know we've we've kind of talked a little bit about how in our community it's really difficult to have conversations around divorce, um, and ar- around a lot of I think what people call like oh family issues we tend to shy away from them as a community, um, and one of the the kind of conversations that always looms large in my mind is 
the way in which we raise girls. Mm. And, and that this is across the board, I think, for everyone. There is no single country or religion or culture that raises girls, I think, in a way in which we are equal um, and, and treated equal. Um, and that's, you know, proven by just the rates of, of femicide, you know, killing girls just because they're girls, um, because they're born daughters or, or um, not educating our girl children. So this is something that is quite universal, but I'm going to specifically focus on our community for the sake of this conversation. You have daughters, you have sons, um, and, and you've been quite outspoken about the fact that we need to raise our daughters differently. What do you mean by that? You know, part of the reason that we aren't able, you know, there, there's absolutely truth in that um, a lot of societies, cultures, whatever, I mean, anybody, like, you know, boys and girls are often raised differently. Um, and sometimes that feels like that's where the inequality begins at home. And, and oftentimes it does. But at the same time, you're sending your sons and daughters out into, into worlds that they're going to, that will encounter them completely differently. So when my daughters get out into the world, they're going to be met with it. The world is not going to treat them the way it treats the sons. And so when I mm -hmm. talk about, um, and, and this is true for, for example, you know, young black boys, right? Like you have to exactly them for the world that is out there and tell them this is the reality. Um, of the world that's out there. And so I think that's part of being, um, and you know, I have one son and my son is three years old. My eldest, who's a girl, is 23. So I have a huge, and then I have an 11 year old daughter, huge mm -hmm. gap uh, in raising children. And he was really a, a surprise, <laughs> frankly. Um, and so, you know, I, I spent a lot, and he's very little, he's only three. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I, I want to raise him as somebody who is really compassionate and an empath. Um, and it's not like some of the men that I've encountered, not like some of the, you know, some of the stereotypical people that we, we know, you know, end up enforcing patriarch and misogyny in our communities. Uh, cause that terrifies me and all the elements are there for that to happen because you know what, that's more, that's the most beneficial thing to him. I mean, yeah. for a man, for a man, why would a man reject all of the all of the privilege, right? The society. Exactly. So um, I'm still going to have to figure that out. And I quite haven't. And I'm like, okay, I have a few more years. But with my daughters, you know, I um, want them, I just want them to know that they don't have, you know, I think about what I went through and why I felt that shame. And I, my biggest concern is that I don't want them to ever feel um, constrained by what will people say? What yeah. will people think? Um, I, I want them to experience everything in the world that anybody has the right to experience. Um, my eldest, like I said, she's 23, she's in grad school and she started her first full-time job. Now this is kind of a big deal in our family because, um, she's the eldest granddaughter on my mom's side and she wants to, she wants to get her own place. And her mm -hmm. father, who's my ex wrote to me and said, this is completely unacceptable. She can, she, she's in my home. She's in your home. Fine. She wants to move into her own place. She has to get married. You know, I mean, it's very, <laughs> she can get married, move in with her husband. And I said to him, absolutely not. I said, I want her to have a chance in her life to live independently, to take care of herself, to enjoy herself, to travel, yeah. to do everything she wants to do that you would be fine with a son doing. And exactly. so, you know, I've been, I was like, not only do I want you to move out, I want you to buy your own place. So I've been helping her to look for a property. So she can actually buy her own place at 23. And, um, so, you know, my thing is I just, uh, 
we just have to prepare our daughters and and reduce from them the idea that um, that they that should they exist to please others. Yeah, or they should expect less from life. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you wholeheartedly, and I'm, I'm so grateful to hear that. I think your daughter is, is such an incredible badass, so I'm excited to hear that she's going after everything that she wants as well. Okay. Rabia, I ask um, everyone who comes on the show this question, and, um, and it remains to be one of my favorite because the answers are always so varied, but, you know, if you had to bring, you know, one idea, one book, one person, one thought... Um, one memory, if you will, to the table, what would it be to share with this community? What would it be? Oh my goodness. That is a big question. Cause that could be so many things. <laughs> I know. And you're only allowed to pick one. That's the best part. <laughs> let me, sh- let me share a story about a lesson um, that I learned from um, the, one of the latest innocence cases that I investigated last year. Yes, please. Um, this case comes out of rural Georgia. So we're talking about, uh, you know, mostly poor white people. I am the only Muslim woman they've probably, many of these people um, in the towns that I had to go to had seen in their lives. I was very apprehensive taking this case because I knew it would mean that I would literally be doing investigating. I would be on the ground trying to talk to witnesses, looking for evidence, in an area that has Confederate flags, that is very heavily Trump country. Um, And I was really anxious about this. And I think there was anxiety all around for the people, the local people who are gonna be working with me as well. And I came away from that experience. I spent so much time in, in trailer parks because many of the people that I needed to find and speak to were, not just living in trailer parks, they had grown up there, their mm-hmm. parents had grown up there, their grandparents had grown up there. And what I saw was basically, um, I'm not making excuses for anybody's racism, but what I'm saying is that, what I'm saying is that uh, there, we from a distance judge communities and judge what people are saying on the surface without any consideration to like generational trauma, addiction, mm-hmm all of these things that are there. I mean, we don't think of endemic uh, poverty and addiction and trauma when I think of like white Americans. I just don't connect those things. Yeah. But much of the country looks just like that, looks like these communities. And then here we are having certain expectations from these people to be sophisticated enough to understand foreign policy and this and that and economics. But and these, these are people who, some of them might even today not have like toilets inside their, their trailer, you know? Yeah. And so for me, the lesson is like, you know, that even the people who we think of as our worst enemies, who we think are the most, like there are layers to every human story. And um, we, we should always pause and think about what else is this person's life about? where how did they get where they are fine they're at this point what led them to this point right so there's always a story there and i do believe in the power of redemption and i do believe mm-hmm. in the power of talking to people and connecting with people who who seem to even be like you know what you would say a political enemy or a social enemy or whatever even people yeah. who hate you even people who hate you i think there is value to that um because 90% of the time, everybody walks away having realized how much they misunderstood each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that what being at the table means to you? 
Like what, what does being at the table mean to you? Is it, is it being willing to sit down with people who, you know, superficially completely hate one another are, are not, don't see the humanity uh, in you and having that conversation or what does being at the table mean to you? Being at the table has two functions as far as I'm concerned. The first is obviously to bring your truth and reality and the truth and reality and concerns of the people you might represent um, to the forum in case nobody else has considered those issues, right, or that perspective. But the other thing, and I think even the greater part of that part of being at the table is to listen to everybody else's perspective, is to learn mm -hmm. to just be still and listen to people and understand what why are their priorities the way they are what is really at the root of this what's the fear and mm -hmm. even in the fear even in the disagreement where are their moments where are the opportunities what are the points that we actually agree on and how do you start how do you work from there you know there are times when you think I hold X, this one position, that her person holds a different position. But the, if you really dig down into what you both want, you actually both want the same things. Mm -hmm. You just want the same things. But um, it's just being expressed in really, really terribly, you know, different ways. Different ways. Um, yeah. And so, you know, m the work that I've done with Shalom Hartman, I think that's, that's taught me also similar things, which is um, just the value of learning to listen to people talk about themselves, talk about their own communities, and just shutting up for a minute. Um, and then mm -hmm. you can reassess. Once you know what is at stake for everybody, then you know then what your ask can be, what's realistic, yeah. um, and what can maybe work for everybody. In negotiation training, uh, there's, you know, one of the kind of things that you're always supposed to keep in the back of your mind is what is the red line for the person you're negotiating with? Right. And, um, and people often, I think, when, when they're in an active negotiation, particularly when it's a tense situation or um, even geopolitical negotiations, when we're talking about global security and, and, and kind of regional, either resource um, uh, warfare or, or increased militarization, et cetera, people often forget that, that in order for you to know someone's red line, you have to actually know what is of value to them. Absolutely. Right. You, you can't just automatically assume what their red line is yeah. um, because that's usually how most negotiations end in a negative way. Right. And so in order to get that, you, you have to actually, I think, see them as as human in the same way that, that you hope they see you as human and have a conversation about what is important to you. Why is it important to you? And oftentimes people don't volunteer that information. Oftentimes you do have to read between the lines and you do have to just shut up and let them kind of ramble on about an experience or or a moment or but it, but it's such a critical thing. And I think when we have conversations now, when I think even just about political conversations or even COVID, right? And people are like, yeah, this is a hoax or this isn't real. Or I think there's so much more we have to be talking about other than, you know, I, I do think there's a, a fraction of the population that, yeah. that it doesn't matter how many conversations you have, they're not going to change their mind. Um, but I also think there's... And, you know, my red line, you know, I'm not, I'm not that person who, I don't, I don't believe in both sides of the both sides of an issue when exactly. one, side clearly, one side clearly stands for harming other people. Exactly. And other people and physically destroying other people. Like that's, that, that is my red line. That's the red line. Yeah. But, as long, but that's, a, that's a pretty, like, that's a pretty advanced line. Like, so if I know you're not going to hurt me, kill me, try to, whatever... Up until that point, I'm still willing to talk, you know? Even so, if they are, so let me, let me push the envelope here a little bit because I actually think that that's, um, I think that's courageous, but I'm, I personally could never do that. If I know that the person in front of me um, has no value for me or my people and, and, 
and states that clearly, not an, not an uneducated guess, but something that they've actively, you know, they actively believe in, they mobilize other people to believe in. For me, that's a difficult conversation where I feel like it is almost dehumanizing for me to sit with that person. Right. How do you feel about that? Yeah, look, there are people who obviously have created their entire careers around yeah. that kind of thing. And those people are also off the grid for me. Most of the people yeah. I'm talking about are the average people. It's like the yeah. average person who maybe it's my neighbor next door who, uh, who, has, who just believes that, you know, Muslims are all, you know, like one instance away from being a terror or something like that. It's not somebody Coming who's organized. It's not somebody who has tons and tons at stake. Like, you know, somebody like that, you've got a Pamela Geller. She's got, she's got way too much at stake. Um, and uh, to change an opinion publicly, yeah. right? or to, like, I'm not, ta I'm talking about average people and who we consider average. And I'll give you an example. I mean, I grew up, um, as somebody very deeply steeped in the pro-Palestinian movement, which is obviously very common as an American Muslim activist. That's where we, that's where, that's where it all begins for us. And it really, it all ends for us too, in many ways. Um, just thinking that Israelis in general, like I, I had come completely dehumanized Israelis, period. The average Israeli for me was, why? Because they all were part of the IDF, you know, and that, that, that versus like a figure like, you know, uh, a right-wing settler. It's like, you know, like making these distinctions, I've had to recalibrate how I think about entire groups of people um, because that's not how I want them to think about me and my group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so there are certain people, obviously, if they, if, if that's like the mission of their life <laughs> is to dehumanize your people, uh, they have too much at stake. They're not, there's no point in that. And they're not the people I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to get to the people that they're trying to get to. Thank you so much, Rabia, for joining me. Honestly, this has been such an incredible conversation. It is, you know, I, I think I, and I'm sure I speak for many, um, young women and young men, um, and, and young people in general who, who hear about your work and hear about your leadership and, and, um, how you've managed to turn a lot of personal pain and trauma into um, something that has empowered and supported so many women and and so many communities and, and how you've really leveraged your voice to champion those we, we most often ignore. So thank you for joining me today. It's a, it's a real <laughs> pleasure and honor. Thank you, Allah. No, thank you, Rafia. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lamb Thank you for joining us. <laughs>